Hello again. Good to see you. It's been a good week. Um, we all slept well on Thursday and Friday night. I think you probably did too. Uh, it was a great week at VBS. We had, uh, I think our peak number was 280-something kids, uh, over 120 adults. So that's by my math, more than 400 people on our campus, which was exciting. Uh, all the kids heard the gospel presentation. They all had a good time. And as far as I know, everybody survived. So uh, it was a great week. And only heaven knows the seeds that were planted and what's going to ultimately happen. We had several kids accept Christ, but then lots of seeds planted that will lead to further salvations and lives changed and families saved. I just want to say, everybody who put in work this week, I, I would love to know how many volunteer hours were spent on VBS alone. <laughs> Because there was a ton of work done by a lot of people, and we've got some outstanding volunteers, and I really appreciate them. Uh, Kathy did a great job. She always does leading VBS. It just, it just runs so well when, when, when people are working hard and serving the Lord. Today we are in Matthew 23. Matthew 23, uh, and if you'll turn there with me, this is a big chapter in Scripture. This is, this is one of those foundational chapters. It's one that will get up in your business and will mess around with your head. This is not going to be an easy chapter to look at because this is not comforting stuff. This is challenging stuff. There are plenty of pats on the back and, and, and rubs on the head in Scripture. This is one of those kick in the rear end kind of chapters, okay? So just be ready for that. It's also a chapter with a lot of content. Um, I have done whole series out on these chapters where I've spent six or seven weeks we're going to do this in a day, so you're going to have to listen fast. You're going to have to listen and be attentive because I'm going to move fast. Um, so I'm going to start by, by saying a quote and seeing how many of you have heard this before. Raise your hand if you've heard this statement. Christianity isn't a religion, it's a relationship. Have you heard that before? Okay, very good, most of you. Well, it's not really true. Think about it. Are there, are there rules and commands in Christianity that other people don't follow? Yes, there are. Are there rituals we do, like going to church, getting baptized, taking the Lord's Supper? Yes. Um, are there certain doctrines that we believe, things that we believe about the world, about God, about heaven, the life after this one, that the rest of the world doesn't believe? Yes. If you've got doctrines and you've got rules and you've got rituals, you've got a religion. Christianity is very much a religion. The difference is that Christianity points to a relationship. And without that relationship, it doesn't matter how well you do on the religious side of things. You can believe all the right stuff. You can do all the right things. You can obey all the rules. You can avoid the big sins. You can show up in church every time the doors are open and still miss God. So it's not about how good you are at religion. It is about the relationship. Without that relationship, everything else is worthless. It's even possible for the religious part of it to get in the way. It's even possible for our religion to be an idol that keeps us from really knowing and serving and enjoying our God. How can that possibly be possible? That's what we're going to talk about today because we're in this series and next week we're going to wrap it up. We're going to start a series on David in two weeks. But we're in this series about idolatry, about the things that get in the way of our relationship with God, about the things that become, they're good things, but they become ultimate things, and they poison our relationship with them. They keep us from enjoying abundant life, and they make us terrible witnesses. Good things like our families, like comfort and pleasure, like romantic love and sex, like wealth and success, like power, like the approval of others. These things can get in the way if we make them ultimate things. 
And today we're going to look at the idea of religious idolatry. So the context here in Matthew 23 is Jesus is in Jerusalem. He's standing in the temple courts. It's just a couple of days before his crucifixion. And he preaches a message, a very strong, very strident, very controversial message against two specific groups in the the nation of Israel. And they're not the kind of groups that you and I would have chosen to denounce if we'd been alive back then. See, there were lots of different factions within Judaism and in the land of Israel at that time. There was a group called the Herodians. They were people who their identity was built around supporting and propping up the Herods. So Herod the Great, remember, was the king of Israel uh, under Roman authority, uh, rebuilt the temple and uh, tried to kill Jesus, remember? Uh, His kids and grandkids ruled in various ways in different parts of the Roman Empire. The Herods, the Herodians were all about propping them up. And you're you're talking about someone who's, who's captain of their ship was some of the most immoral, corrupt rulers that have ever existed, Herod the Great especially. And yet Jesus never says a word against the Herodians. As wrong as they were, Jesus didn't get into that. There was another group called the Zealots. Uh, the Zealots were, uh, they taught things that were exact opposite of what Jesus taught. Jesus taught, love your enemies, turn the other cheek, be kind to those who hate you. The Zealots said, the only way to bring about change is through bloody revolution. They advocated, they advocated war. They advocated assassination, acts of terrorism. I'm sure they hated the message of Jesus, but Jesus never denounced them either. In fact, he invited one of their members, Simon the Zealot, to be one of his 12 disciples. For that matter, you and I, if we would have been advising Jesus, we'd have said, hey, preach a sermon against the Romans. I know it would take guts. I know it'd be risky, but listen, they're violent people. They believe in all these false gods. They're bringing their polytheistic religion into Israel, which is just blasphemy. Uh, they believe in a sexual ethic that is absolutely the opposite of what scripture says. They oppress our people. They have no regard for our temple or our God. And yet Jesus never spoke a word against the Romans. It would have made him very popular to do so, but he didn't. Instead, in this message, he speaks against two groups, the scribes and the Pharisees. So who are these people? Because if you read the New Testament, you're tempted to think of them as one group because they're usually listed together, scribes and Pharisees, but they're different. The scribes were what you and I might call the clergy. Officially, originally, the scribes were the people who copied, hand copied the text of the Torah from one generation to the next. But over time, they became more than that. They became the teachers of Israel. Their job was to make sure everyone knew what the word of God said. The Pharisees, on the other hand, were not clergy. They were laymen, but they had joined an exclusive club. The club's requirements were memorize the 600 command, 613 commands in the Old Testament and live them out in a very conspicuous way. Their job was, we want to live such righteous lives that the people of Israel will be inspired to follow our example and it'll protect our nation from falling once again. If you and I, I know this is hard to believe because we think of them as the bad guys, but if you and I had lived in first century Israel, most of us would have looked up to the scribes and Pharisees. They would have been our heroes. They were the good guys. And yet Jesus here preaches this strong message denouncing them. The really ironic part was the scribes and Pharisees were devoted to keeping Israel from idolatry. If you've been reading the Old Testament along with us as we read through the Bible, you probably get you probably caught on to this pattern where over and over again, the Israelites will suddenly decide to follow a different God other than Yahweh. And after a while, they'll suffer the consequences and then they repent and they come back to God and then their kids do the same thing. And you're wondering what's, what's going on? Well, eventually you'll get to this later on in second Kings. Eventually the whole nation crumbles. 
Eventually, God has enough, and he allows them to be destroyed, and he allows their nation to be overrun and the people to be carried off into exile for 70 years. And it's only by a miracle of God's grace that they're able to come home to Israel and refound their nation. And so the Pharisees and scribes, their whole mission was to say, never again. We will never allow this to happen again. In fact, the Pharisees, you may not know this, were the descendants of a group called the Hasidim. These were the ones who, during the time of the Maccabees, fought alongside the Maccabees and won a revolution against Israel's enemies that Jews still celebrate today in Hanukkah. So they were exceptionally patriotic, exceptionally devoted people, and yet they stumbled into their own form of idolatry. It was an idolatry of their own religion. So let's start with verses 2 and 3. Let's see what Jesus says about these men, and and then we're going to work through the rest of the chapter. Verse 2 The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, so do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. For they preach, but do not practice. Do you hear what Jesus is saying? When they speak, they're usually telling you the truth, but don't follow their example. They've got the religion, but they don't have the relationship. Now skip down to the end, verses 37 through 39. Don't get excited. We're not done yet. Verse 37 through 39 Jesus says, ends the sermon in this very, very poignant, heartbreaking way. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. What is he saying? He is telling What is going to happen to Jerusalem in the future? In 70 AD, 30 some odd years after Christ ascended into heaven, the city of Jerusalem was plundered by Titus, the Roman general. One of the worst slaughters in human history took place that day. The the walls of the city, for the most part, were collapsed. All that was left was what we know as the Western Wall or the Wailing Wall. The temple itself was burned to the ground and it has never been rebuilt. Today, on the side of the Temple Mount, where the temple once stood, there's the Dome of the Rock, an Islamic mosque. And Jesus is saying, it's because you did not know me. It's because you chased after other things that this came about in your life. Now, I'm about to say a terrible thing, y'all. We as Christians in 2019, we we often decry the fact that the church doesn't have the same kind of social status that it once did that we don't have the influence on our society that in previous generations we had, that the church today isn't growing the way it is in places like China and South America and Africa, where, praise God, the gospel's spreading like wildfire, but here it seems for the most part to be stagnant. There's an old statistic that something like 85 to 90% of churches are either stuck or declining in number. And we want to blame all kinds of people for that. We want to blame the current generation. It's, it's popular to blame millennials and Generation Z. Oh, it's their fault. They're just not receptive to the gospel. Or we want to blame atheists or people of other religious groups or the media. But I'm here to tell you, it's us. Because Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. There is nothing that can stop the church of Jesus Christ except the church of Jesus Christ. When we choose not to follow Jesus, when we choose not to be all in for him, this is the result. I hope you're praying for revival in the American church today. I hope you're praying for it every day. We can't make that happen by sheer force of will. We can pray for it, but what we can do 
is we can look at a chapter like chapter 23 where I think Jesus says things to the scribes and Pharisees that he would say almost verbatim to us today. We can look at this chapter and we can ask ourselves, how many of these things are true of me? So that's your job over the next few minutes. Ask yourself, how many of these things are true of me? I'm going to say four things that Jesus said to the Pharisees and scribes. Number one, do I practice religious image management? Now, that's my term. That's not Jesus' term, but we all know what this is. We, if you're on social media, for instance, you look at the pictures people post. Do they ever, do they ever post pictures uh, where they don't have their makeup on or where their mouth is open and they're in mid-chew or mid-sentence? Do they ever post pictures where they're yelling at their kids or where they're rolling their eyes at their spouse? No, they only post these carefully curated pictures where they look flawless. I mean, you go on Instagram, you can even get a little filter that makes you look even better, right? We, we all manage our image. There's a lot of us, if we were honest, we would say, you know, I really paid more than I should have for my car. I probably wear clothes that are a little nicer than I should, but I just need to let people know that I'm doing well. That's image management. In a religious sense, image management has nothing to do with your outward appearance or, or looking successful. It's all about convincing everyone that you're doing things the right way, that you're moral that you're above reproach, that you're right with God. And we do that too. The scribes and Pharisees certainly did. Jesus, six times in this chapter, he uses the word hypocrites to refer to the scribes and Pharisees. Jesus did not invent the word hypocrite, by the way. That was already in common use back then, but he gave it a new meaning. In Jesus' day before he came along, that was the Greek word that they used for an actor in a play. So if you know someone who's in drama in high school or maybe someone who does amateur theater down here, you can go up to them and say, you're the best hypocrite I know. Probably not. Probably not a good idea, but it would be correct. A hypocrite in those days, an actor actually wore a mask because they would have these plays in these huge amphitheaters. And if you were sitting in one of the back rows, you wouldn't be able to see the expressions on the actor's faces. So they'd wear these oversized masks. And Jesus is saying... These scribes and Pharisees are playing a role. They are putting on a mask. What you see is not what's real. In verse 5, he says, in fact, they do all their deeds to be seen by others. Did the scribes and Pharisees do good deeds? Yes, they gave to charity. Yes, they avoided all the big vices, but it was all an act. It was, it was not what was really going on in their lives. And he refers to something they did to, to make themselves look more righteous. He, he talks about they wore phylacteries and tassels or fringes. Now, there's a picture on the screen there. That's a, that's a Jewish man in modern-day New York. You see the little black box on his forehead and the strap around his forearm and wrist. That's a phylactery. So Israelite men for, for centuries, especially Orthodox Jews today, will wear these boxes on their, on their wrists and on their forehead. And inside the boxes is a scripture verse that's written on a piece of paper, and that's Deuteronomy 6.4. It's called the Shema. It's the foundational text of Judaism. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And in verse 8 of that same chapter, it says, bind these words on your foreheads and wear them on your wrists. They take that literally. That's why they wear the phylactery. Do you see the, the white uh, prayer shawl around his neck? You see the little tassels uh, that are hanging off on the edge of that. That's, those are the tassels that are referred to in that same chapter. God commanded the Israelite men, wear these prayer shawls, wear the tassels to remind you of your relationship to God. Uh, Jesus wore one of those. It stretched all the way down to the end of his tunic. We know this because when the woman we talked about a few weeks ago in Luke, who had been bleeding for 12 years and couldn't get any aid, when she reached out and touched the hem of his garment, the word that Luke uses for hem 
is that word fringe or tassel. But what the Pharisees did was they went to the phylactery store, phylactery mark, and they said, give me the XXXXL because I want everyone to know how righteous I am. I want the extra long tassels. I want to be tripping on those things. I want people to know how righteous I am. And don't we do the same things? We may not wear garments to show how righteous we are, but for us it's more like, I need to keep all my troubles, all my flaws on the down low, and I need to play up all my righteousness. When we come into our church, when we go into our life group, we put on our best face, don't we? When during prayer time, and it's time to ask for prayers, we'll quickly ask for prayer for Aunt Edna's kidney and Uncle Joe's lung. And yes, those things matter. Those things matter to God. But those are moments when, if we were honest, we would cry out and say, y'all, my friends, my brothers and sisters, I've got an anger problem, and I am tearing a hole in my marriage, and I need to straighten out. And that might inspire somebody else to say, you know, you're right. I've, I've got this hatred for my boss that makes me a terrible witness to everybody at work because I'm constantly complaining. And somebody else might say, you know, now that you mention it, I've been hiding this all along, but I'm an addict. And it's, it's destroying my relationships and it's, it's messing up my life and I need to get straight and y'all need to pray for me because I know God can deliver me from this. I wish that we could take tr truth serum on the way into life group so that we would be honest with one another. Our vision as a church is to be, above all else, a church that makes disciples. And there's no discipleship without authenticity. So are you, are you someone who, who majors on crafting and curating your image to all your fellow Christians? Are you willing to be vulnerable and open and say, I need prayer, I need accountability, I need help? Second question, am I better at keeping score of others or at drawing others to the Lord. In verse 4, Jesus says, They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with a finger. In verse 13, he says of the scribes and Pharisees, For you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. You know, the thing about the scribes and Pharisees, they hated Jesus most of all because he was a friend of sinners. See, to them, they thought they understood the difference between ordinary sins and real bad sins. They thought they knew how to rank sins in God's eyes. To them, uh, someone who had sinned in a sexual manner or someone who collected taxes for the Romans, they were the worst of the worst. They were outside of God's love. And if you were the son or daughter of that person or the grandson or granddaughter, you were cursed too. You were not welcome in the synagogue. They were good at ranking people. They were good at keeping score. And we do that too, don't we? We religious folks, if, the longer you've been in church, if you're like me, I've been in church my whole life, the longer you've been in church, the better you get at keeping score of others and, say, and deciding who's in and who's out. When I was growing up, I, I went to church every Sunday. The people I went to church with, they never used foul language. They never cussed, but of course I heard cuss words out there in the world. And I, I learned quickly, well, that's how you discover who's really saved. I mean, this person may go to church at another church, but I heard him use a bad word the other day on the playground. I heard him use a bad word the other day in algebra class. 
He's obviously not saved. He obviously needs Jesus. Well, you know what? He does need Jesus. And God does care what we say. Our words matter to him. And if you're out there using F-bombs and other dirty words, you need to realize your words matter to God. I heard somebody say this a while back. Profanity is the linguistic crutch of the inarticulate. And I liked it because it sounded really smart. So if you're using that kind of language, call on God and say, Lord, help me because I need to use words that honor and glorify you. But you know what I realized when I grew up? I realized that some of the people I grew up with, not just in my church, but some of the Christian people I grew up with who were the meanest, who were the least forgiving, who were the least appealing for Christ, would have sooner died than utter a four-letter word. So all my keeping score didn't really add up. See... Religion helps you keep score, but Jesus wants you to draw people to himself. One of the challenges we gave you at the beginning of this year was pray every day for lost people. We even gave you a method. If you haven't started this, grab a sheet on your way out in the all-in table. Challenge number two is about praying for the lost people in your life, and there's seven different categories. And you can work through that one a day until every week you've prayed for all the lost people that God has brought into your life. And that's going to change your life. I've been doing this for years, and it's, it's, a, it's a great method. Are you doing that? Are you intentionally living in such a way that you are taking time to relate to people who don't know Christ and doing what you can to influence them? You may say, Jeff, I've, I've never led anybody to Christ. But are you trying? Are you at least about that lifestyle? You don't know the effect that God is having through you. And some of our members have been very honest with me, and they've said, well, Jeff, I'd love to do that. I just don't know any non-believers. All my people that I hang out with, they're all Christians. Good for them, but that just means the salt is still in the shaker when it needs to be out there where there's no flavor. That means the light is under a bushel when it needs to be out there where there's darkness. That means you and I need to actually get out. If you're in school, don't just hang out with the Christian kids. Take some time to hang out with some people who don't know Christ. If you are in the office place, don't just spend time with the normal crowd. Eat lunch with someone new this week. Cross your cul-de-sac and get to know your neighbor. Ask them to keep your pets for you when you go out of town and then offer to do the same for them. Join a gym and actually go. And don't wear your earbuds so you can actually talk to people. You know, I'm not telling you to witness to somebody when he's doing chin-ups. That's probably not the best time. But, but there's those moments in between. Volunteer at your child's school. Get to know the other parents at your kid's baseball game or soccer match or, or gymnastics class. Uh, volunteer in the hospital. Get involved in prison ministry. Go to the golf course. I know we've got some golfers here, right? And Jesus loves golfers because they need grace. Go to the golf course without a foursome. Just show up and catch on with somebody else's group. Take time to get to know others. Because here's the thing. They hated Jesus. They called him a friend of sinners because the most scandalous sinners of all, the people that the religious authorities hated the most, they were the ones most attracted to Jesus. And those same kinds of people today wouldn't be caught dead in a church. What changed? Because I got to tell you, Jesus did not change. Jesus is still exactly what lost people are looking for. He's still the water of life. He's still what everybody's thirsty for. And when they find him, they rejoice Jesus didn't change, but we changed. Those kinds of people stopped coming to church because they stopped seeing Jesus in us. They stopped seeing the living water in you and me. Let's do something about that. That's on us. Number three, 
Do I think because I'm good at being religious that God is going to bless me? In verse 23, Jesus says, you, the scribes and the Pharisees, you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Now, all Jews in that time tithed. If you were an observant Jew, it was no question. You were going to give 10% of your crops, 10% of your salary straight to the temple. But the Pharisees and scribes went further. They tithed on everything. They even tithed on the herbs in their flower beds. And it's not because God needed the money. That was mere pennies. It was their way of saying, Lord, this is my extra credit, okay? I'm showing you I'm more devoted than everybody else. And so you're going to bless me in return, right? You remember the story of the prodigal son, right? Who's the main character in that story? It's not the prodigal. It's not even the father, even though he represents God. I submit to you, the main character of that story is the older brother. The one we usually don't think about. The one the preacher usually doesn't talk about. Because remember how the story goes. After the prodigal comes home and they kill the fatted calf and they're having this great party, the father goes out, leaves the party, leaves his guests, which was unheard of, goes out to meet his older, brother, his older son who is refusing to come in. And he says, won't you come in? And the older son says, why should I? In fact, he says, look. He doesn't address his father with grace, with reverence. He says, look. Basically, listen to me, old man. I've done nothing but obey you my whole life. I've never disobeyed you once. I've done nothing but serve you with every bead of sweat from my brow, and you've never given me anything. And this idiot goes out and embarrasses our family and wastes all our money. And when he comes home, you give him a hero's welcome. I'm not going to celebrate that. Who was Jesus telling that story to? See, we picture Jesus telling that story and we picture a bunch, of, a bunch of drunks and a bunch of prostitutes, a bunch of tax collectors standing around and listening and thinking, oh my goodness, the door's open for me too. And over the centuries, that is who has received that story with gladness. But in the original time, Jesus was telling that story not to irreligious people, but to scribes and Pharisees. Look it up in Luke 15. It's a group of scribes and Pharisees who come to Jesus and say, how come you eat with sinners? And he tells them that story. You know why? Because that older brother represents them. That older brother is the scribes and Pharisees. So to all of us rule-keeping religious types, and that includes me, I'm good at this. I can do this all day. But to all of us who find religion an easy route to take, Ask yourself the question, do you think God owes you a certain level of prosperity because of your goodness? Do you think he should bless you because of all the obedience and all the church going? When things don't go your way, when your prayer doesn't get answered, do you ever find yourself bitter and say, okay, Lord, where have you been? I've been doing good. Is this the way you reward me? Because that's religious idolatry talking. And finally, number four. When did I last repent? When did I last repent? Jesus starts to talk about the prophets of old. Now, a prophet's job in the Old Testament at any time is to confront God's people and say, you think you're headed in the right direction, but you missed the turnoff way back there. A prophet's job is to confront sin. And Jesus says, the, problems with, the problem with you Pharisees and scribes is you build these monuments on the, temp, on the tombs of the prophets, but you never obeyed them. If you go to Israel today, you can find the, the 
tomb of Ezekiel and the tomb of Jeremiah and these massive monuments that the scribes and Pharisees themselves built as an outward show of we revere these men. But he says, no, you would be just like your forefathers. You would hate them. And in fact, what Jesus does is he mentions two specific prophets. He mentions Abel and Zechariah. Now, we know the story of Abel, right? Abel was one of the first two children born on earth. His brother Cain, when they were grown, killed Abel because Abel was pleasing to God and and Cain was jealous of him. But we don't really know the story of Zechariah. Zechariah was a prophet who came along much, much later, who confronted the king of Israel over the idolatry of his people. And the king of Israel ordered him to be executed. They stoned Zechariah to death in the temple itself. Now, not only do Abel and Zechariah start with the letters A and Z, which is just a happy coincidence, you might say, for us in the English language, but the story of Abel takes place near the beginning of the book of Genesis. The story of Zechariah takes place near the end of the book of 2 Chronicles, which was the last book of the Hebrew Bible. So what Jesus is saying, he's not just picking those two at random. He's saying from the very beginning from the, to the very end, you have always resisted my word. You're religious, but you don't have the relationship. When I confront you about sin, you get mad, you get violent, you get defensive. And that's a sure sign that you don't have relationship. Because in any relationship, in any relationship, that person you love has to be able to contradict you, has to be able to confront you, or else it's not a relationship. So ask yourself the question, when was the last time I repented? See, repentance is not just saying, well, I'm really sorry I did that. It's definitely a whole lot more than saying, well, nobody's perfect. It's more definitely than that perfunctory, Lord, bless us for, uh, forgive us for all the many ways we failed you kind of prayer that we tend to do as religious folks. Repentance is this soul deep, honest to goodness, tear filled humble, coming before the Lord and saying, Lord, I have made a mess of things and I never want to go down this road again, so show me how to do a U-turn. I need your power, I need your strength, because I can't do this myself. And a lot of us, especially those of us who were brought up in evangelical backgrounds, we think of repentance as how you get saved, and it's true. There's no salvation without repentance. But repentance is not just the entry ticket to the family of God. It's how you grow. You never advance in your walk with Christ without repentance. Repentance should be something you and I do all the time, unless we've gotten to that state of sinlessness, and I don't know that that's happened to any of you. It certainly hadn't happened to me. So if you can't think of the last time that you genuinely apologized to someone you hurt with not, without reservation, with no motive, if you can't think of the last time there was a, a really bad habit you decided to attack, in your life, if you, you can't remember the last time you realized based on the word of God that your thinking on a certain issue was completely wrong and you'd learned something new. If you can't remember the last time you shed tears over your own guilt and shame. If you can't remember the last time you got down on your knees and said, Lord, please change me. Then it's time to say to God, Lord, search me, know my heart, show me every wicked way in me. Show me what you need to attack in me next. That's something we ought to pray constantly. Search me, O God. Try me and know my heart. Lead me. See if there's any wicked way within me and lead me in the way that is everlasting. You remember how the prodigal son story ends? It doesn't end with the fatted calf being killed. Prodigal son story, the most famous story ever told, actually ends on a cliffhanger. Have you ever thought about that? 
The way the story ends, the, the, the older brother has just said, I'm not coming into that party. And the father says, please, your son who was lost has been found. Your son who was dead is alive. We have to celebrate. And Jesus leaves it open-ended. We don't know what the older brother ultimately did. Why would Jesus leave the story that way? He was telling that story to religious people just like you and me. And he was saying, you know, I appreciate your obedience. I appreciate your religiousness. I appreciate you believing everything I've told you. But I need you to come into the party. He was saying that to these scribes and Pharisees, these men who had heaped scorn and hatred upon him. He loved those men. He would die for those men and did. Even here in Matthew 23, he is doing his best right before the cross to wake them up. And he is pleading today with you and me. See, I'm not judging anybody's salvation here. That's not my job. That's way above my pay grade. But I would say that in a room this size, in a crowd this big, there are bound to be some people who have us all fooled. And I don't know who they are. Holy Spirit does, and maybe you do. People who know how to play the religious game, know how to use the lingo. But deep down inside would have to admit, I've never really made a true heart commitment to Christ. I thought I could just do some rituals and be good with God. Today's the day you need to repent. Can you imagine the revival it would set off if somebody here walked forward and said, I know this is going to surprise you all, but I need grace. I need salvation. There's also other people in this room, I'm sure, and I don't know who they are, but the Holy Spirit does, who if they were honest would say, there was a time when I was on fire for Christ, when He was my everything, when I was growing like crazy, but that's been a long, long time ago, and I've been stuck in the spiritual mud ever since. And I want to get that back. And here's the good news. God wants you back. He wants you back where you were. He wants to take you further than you've ever gone before. So just remember, nothing in this whole wide world is more important than your relationship with your father. He died to make it possible. So wherever you are, wherever you stand, he is, sta he is standing before you today saying, come on, join the party.